Zoe read for us a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 13, uh, a very well-known text where Paul tells us to be subject to ruling authorities. This is a parallel passage to that. You're going to find that what Peter says here is very similar to what we read in Romans 13, where Paul wrote to the church. And, uh, and I'll talk about some of the, the links there. Uh, the title of this message, though, and I, I don't think you would have necessarily picked this up because you weren't looking for it like I was, but you may notice that in the songs that we've sung this morning, there's been a theme of the freedom that we have in Christ, uh, that that freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom that he has, he has set us free from our bondage to sin, our bondage to death, and liberated us as his people, right? So we are ultimately free people. Um, however, we, uh, that doesn't extend to our political realities necessarily. It doesn't extend to our, our, our individual situations. Uh, so we may be uh, not so free in other ways. And we're called in certain institutions here to be actually submissive or subject to those institutions because, and this is what I hope you guys pick up this morning, I'm giving away kind of the main idea of my sermon right from the get-go, because we're free in Christ. Like, we can, we can be subject to the realities of this world because we're free in Christ. And therefore, that freedom is going to direct how we actually interact with those uh, authorities in our lives, even when they're unjust, and that's what we'll talk through. I've titled the sermon uh, this morning this, Living in Freedom Means living in servitude. Living in freedom means living in servitude. For the Christian, that's actually true. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. And to demonstrate that, let's go ahead and read this text, because I think this is what Peter lays out. So, 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, there is, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was sin, or excuse me, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, I pray that as we study this passage that that you have given to us through your servant Peter, Lord, that that you would help us to not only understand what you've you've said here, but also to apply it in our own context, uh, in ways that that bring you glory, in ways that point to Christ. Teach us, Lord, to follow in his steps as we're commanded here, Lord. Teach us to be like Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. Most of you probably weren't here last week. Uh, We covered the beginning part of chapter 2, but last week's passage was central to the theme of the entire letter of 1 Peter. In verses 4 to 12, he establishes this sort of biblical worldview, uh, this, this way in which we can sort of see uh, how everything, you know, operates in the world. It, 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 it sort of has this fulcrum point, and that fulcrum point is Jesus. He's the cornerstone, is actually what Peter talks about. He's the, he's the beginning of the structure that's being built, that is the church, and we'll either be lined up with him and built up as a spiritual house in him, or we'll trip over him, we'll reject him, so he's, he's letting us know that Jesus is, is the center of all things. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple promise that God's spirit would dwell among his people through a Messiah. And so he is that Messiah who's come, and because of his exalted position as the cornerstone, every single person will be confronted with this pivotal decision when they encounter him. Again, we're either going to line up with him by faith We're going to humbly accept him for who he is, or we're going to reject him by continuing in brokenness and continuing in disobedience to the authoritative word of God. And what Peter wants us to know is that that uh, that sets the trajectory then for the lives that we have, the lives that we live. Those who come to Jesus by faith share in his honor by being built into the spiritual house, into the church. And those who don't, those who reject him, will ultimately be put to shame because they have built their lives on broken things that will eventually be shaken, that will eventually crumble, and they, again, will be shamed in their, uh, their despair, in their nothingness. Jesus is the center. He's the cornerstone upon which it's all, it, all, it all wraps up. And so that biblical worldview that he gives us sets us up then for the imperative command or God's purpose for the church in the world, which we see in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And they're really important because they instruct us on how to reflect Jesus's perfect divinity and humanity in society. Look at them again. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's saying you you live in the world, those of you who've lined up uh, with the cornerstone, you live in the world both as exiles sojourners who are separate. You stay separate. You don't give in to the passions of the flesh, but at the same time, you go deeply into the world. You're not pulled out of the world. You're, you're separate, but you're reflective in it. You're going into it 
as representatives of Jesus Christ. Your conduct before them is such that they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day of visitation. So that was really important to the rest of the letter. We're, we're going to be thinking a lot about what it looks like then to be these separate ones who go in. What does it look like to live this Christian life in a non-Christian world? And as we go through the rest of chapter 2 and 3, he's going to get very specific about how our witness engages the non-believing world, and particularly here, the most basic structures of society. So he's going to be looking at, as you saw, you could tell from what we read, how do we relate to government? That's a, that's a fundamental part of the structures of society. He's going to be talking about how we also then deal in our household relationships. He talked about the, the slave and master relationship here, which I'll explain uh, what that looks like. But that was a, that was a primarily either a, a sort of a household relationship or a relationship that speaks to how we interact in the marketplace. And then he's going to be talking about our, our, uh, our marriage relationships, and we'll cover that part actually next week. But we're going to see that these are the areas that form the basic building blocks of society. They're also the areas in which we'll most often encounter spiritual brokenness that we're called to go into and redeem with a gospel witness. And because we're going into these areas to redeem them through the gospel, we'll also find that there are areas in which the persecution or the pressure against us is most likely to be felt. So how do we do it? How do we engage in this sin-broken world effectively as reflections of Christ? Verses 11 and 12 again are key. They tell us to live as exiles while going deeply into society. And they also warn us against the thing that's most likely to cause us to fail in our purpose as Christ-exalting forces in the world. Again, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What will trip us up is the passions of the flesh that if we, if, we, if we give in to them, right? If we allow them to overtake us. And that's a very helpful admonition when it comes to staying separate yet going deeply into culture. Now you think, what does that mean? What, is, what are the passions of the flesh that we're, that we're supposed to abstain from? And I think many of us, uh, for many of us, it, it brings to mind maybe moral behavior, right? Don't behave, in other words, like the, the non-believers do. Don't, don't, uh, don't lie, don't cheat, don't engage in sexual, sexual immorality or, or drunkenness, etc. And while certainly his words would include those things, uh, they would include, I think, more than that. And this is, this is really helpful. What are the passions of the flesh? Paul gives us a little bit more uh, description when he talks about the passions of the flesh. In fact, I would encourage you if, you, if you keep your finger in 1 Peter and just kind of flip back to Galatians, back to the left, Galatians chapter 5. If you're in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 975, I believe. Paul gives a little bit more description of what's meant by these passions of the flesh. And he's, of course, contrasting that with what it means to walk in the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, where you see the fruits of the Spirit, but he says in Verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Down in verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
Now, those are sort of behaviors, right? We, those are the, sort of those moral behaviors I, I think we probably would think of. But then he says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Those would be less outward behaviors and more what? Sort of inward attitudes, right? Inward attitudes of the heart. Those are also desires of the flesh, not just how I act out in my behavior, but how I think, how I uh, despise or envy or, or disdain or, or, you know, hold anger or bitterness, right? All of that, desires of the flesh. And he continues on with more behaviors, drunkenness, orgies, and says, and things like these. So again, the desires of the flesh are not limited to outward behavior, but also inward attitudes of the heart. We're not to gratify our fleshly desire to harbor those inward feelings against others, right? Or to, to have uh, sort of inward outbursts against those that we might disagree with or those that we might experience opposition from. Again, he's telling them, how do you live in a world that's opposing you, right? Watch the way you, you think and you feel and your, where your heart goes when you're interacting with this opposition, that's important to remember as we apply the rest of the chapter. So he's getting specific now. Okay, if we're, if, we're, if we're guarding against these passions of the flesh, where, how do we do this? And he starts with in verse 13 by saying, So then be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In our ESV Bibles, it says here to be subject. Some trans, translate that as the word submit. He's saying, submit yourselves to every human institution, meaning every human structure of order and authority. He's going to give us some examples, but it's interesting to note that he says everyone. He's, he's telling us as, as God's people that our posture towards institutions, human institutions, order in society should be one of subjection and submission. What is an institution? An institution is, is any kind of organization, uh, societal structure that's, that's put in place to provide order or to provide some sort of set of norms or set of rules for a society. And Peter's saying here, be subject to that. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Now, I've never read this with the same pop before, I think, what, that I read it with as I was studying this week, because I've never really questioned the validity of institutions. Maybe some of you haven't really questioned the validity of institutions either, because we've grown up in society full of institutions, and a lot of us were taught to you know, honor those institutions and obey those institutions. But I, I sort of read this this week, hearing the the voice of culture and society around us now that I think is different than I've ever experienced before in my lifetime, where the, the common cry is, down with the institutions, right? We don't, we don't want to honor or subject ourselves to institutions uh, in, in our day and age. Many of us try to avoid the authority of institutions. Many of us try to resist the, that authority, we see lots of protesting going on, right? And, 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 and just outward signs that, yeah, that's, that's a different reality than many of us have experienced before. And of course, a lot of people are deconstructing all forms of institutions, including the church. 
So I'm reading this with a little different pop than I think I've read it uh, before this week. And I'm going, okay, what, what's the, how do we apply this? Be subject to every human institution. Peter tells us here, as does Paul in Romans 13, that a Christian's posture towards authority and normal, normal social structures, again, are to be one of submission. Why? Why? I think because institutional order at its best, reflects God's order. So in Romans 13, Paul actually says it is God who institutes these authorities. Even these authorities that aren't God-like, right? Or godly in their behavior. God institutes these authorities because God's world is a creation of order. God's design for human relationships is to have a sense of order. His his design for the church, a sense of order. His design for creation certainly has order, right? We see that if we look at it clearly in Scripture. So I think what he's, what he's getting at here is order in and of itself is a good thing. Order in and of itself is a noble thing. And at its best, it reflects God's order. Now, yes, at its worst, institutional order can certainly be oppressive. And it can certainly be unjust. But I, but I think what Peter and Paul would have us to know that is even at its worst, when it's unjust, that in and of itself shouldn't drive us to want to avoid order or overthrow that order. Because the opposite of order would be what? Disorder, chaos, anarchy. That would not be reflective of God's design. So order of, in and of itself... Uh, institutions in and of itself, should be honored. And now he's going to tell us, like, how do you do that? And he's going to get specific again. Which institution does he first highlight in telling the church to be subject to every institution? Government, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So he says here, national and local governments serve God's design for order and justice in the world. And that's a noble thing to affirm. Even, even if we can't affirm everything about the individuals in charge, the structure itself is, is a noble thing to affirm. We're called to affirm the authority and the honor of the office. Now, this passage and the text over in Romans chapter 13 have been parsed and debated by Christians over the centuries as believers have sought to determine, okay, what is this telling us about what the valid role of government is? Or how can we use these passages to help us discern uh, what, what makes a government invalid, right? You got, you got uh, descriptions here about like punishing those who who do evil and rewarding those who do good. Does that help us understand and frame valid versus invalid government? Christians have spent uh, years trying to apply and debate stuff like that. And of course, then how do we live under various forms of government that we might 
that we might happen to live under in our particular context. I mean, he's talking about an emperor here. What about us who live under in a democracy? So there's been a, a lot of different uh, application and, and trying to work through these texts. And I think that's a good thing. It's an important thing. We all have to do that, right? But I don't want us in doing that to miss the point of what Peter is ultimately getting at here. Regardless of how that's going to fully flesh itself out in our context, the point is this. Be subject to the institution. Don't throw off the order, right? And remember the kind of order that Peter was familiar with throughout his life was that of Roman Empire and Roman occupation. So we can talk all day long about what makes a, a government valid or invalid. And by the way, I've been, I've been in churches where they've talked about how if the government is, is, is actually punishing those who do good and rewarding those who do evil, we have no obligation to obey them. We have no obligation to pay taxes in a, in a situation like that. I've been, I've been in situations like that. I think Peter and Paul would say, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. Because Peter's talking about, he's thinking about institution of government that has people like Caligula and Claudius and Nero as the emperors. Crazy people. Insane people. Um, hyper, narcissistic, cruel people. The greatest persecutors of Jews and Christians that the world has ever known. So he could easily say, except in my government, boy, they reward the evil and they punish the good, so let's throw that off. He's not doing that. He's saying be subject. And the governors that he knows, likewise, Pilate, Felix, like these are not, like, these are not uh, the kind of authority you just willingly want to submit yourself to. So we can't miss the point of what he's saying here. He's saying it's, it's the Christian's posture to submit ourselves. Now, that's going to that's gonna taste a little, uh, a little bitter for a lot of us. I'm sure that was tasting a little bitter for his audience originally, as they're thinking about, they're under probably Claudius or Nero at this point. And they're probably thinking, Peter, you're nuts. So, 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 so what's his point? Like, how's he driving us to that kind of submission. Let's read the rest of what he says here, because I think in it we, we, find, we find the heart behind it. He says, for this is the will of God. What is? The submission, the subjection, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice there's two assumptions being made in that sentence. The, the first is, is that, that there's foolish people. So he's acknowledging the fact that, yes, these institutions are full of foolish people. And those who would challenge or oppose you as Christians in this world, they're foolish people. But the second assumption is the way you interact with that foolishness is not resistance, but by doing good. To do good in that society. That's an, that's an active command. It's not just sort of like um, be pious people. 
in your own private lives, make sure you abstain from the passions of the flesh. But there's a, there's a proactive, do good in this society. You will silence the foolishness of the institutions and the opposition when by not trying to overthrow them, you enter into them and do good. And then he says, live as free people, right? Live as people who are free. How can you bear up under this kind of unjust political system? Because you have a freedom that he's already talked all about throughout chapter one. You have been set free from sin in Christ. You are God's people. You are his chosen people. You are a holy race, a chosen nation of people. You are free. So live like free people who aren't afraid of the even unjust or oppressive structures of authority because it ultimately doesn't bind you. It may have circumstantial influence over you, and that might not be very fun, and that's a, that's a euphemism, right? I mean, people, people, people can be truly treated unjustly, but you, believers, are free. And then he says, don't then use that freedom as a cover-up for evil, but rather live as servants of God. So it would be easy for me to say, because I'm free, because I'm subject ultimately to King Jesus and not Emperor Nero or President Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush or go down the line for us, right? Because I'm free... I don't have to be subject to these fools, these clowns, right? Because Jesus is my king. And, and Peter would say, that's, that's, that's not the attitude at all I'm talking about. I'm saying you, you, you use your freedom not as a, as, a, as a means to just shake off and resist and, and, and uh, you know, oppose, but again, to serve. To serve. So by way of immediate application, made me think a lot. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't really been thinking about this until, uh, what was, uh, January 6th. What was that, Thursday? And, I'm, and I'm, I'm watching the news, and of course, it's the one-year anniversary of the, of the, uh, the siege of the Capitol building uh, last year. And it, it struck me, as I'm studying this text, like, Peter would, would speak into, I think, our current situation pretty clearly here. We're not living under Nero, right? None of us are living under that. But we, we do live in a society where uh, we have, because of our freedoms and because of our democratic system, we have this notion that our leaders are here to serve us, Right? Rather than us being here to be servants to them or to others, they're here to serve us, and therefore, if we dislike their authority, we can throw it off. And the thing that, that, that really saddened me as I was watching, again, the coverage of that day was not so much, and, and I, I'm speaking nothing here about anybody's political beliefs, okay? I'm not going to touch on that at all. Here's what bothers me, and I think would bother Peter, is that 
that there are images out there of people who are standing and praying and singing Christian hymns with a noose erected next to them with the name of the vice president of the United States written on it. Now again, I don't, I, I really, I'm not trying to comment on anybody's political stand here, but I think when we, when we look at that kind of attitude, the desires of the flesh, right, to say, we're here in the name of our freedom singing hymns, but we have a noose for that clown in the office. That is a, a polar opposite of what Peter's saying. Polar opposite. This is where, again, the Galatians 5 description of the passions of the flesh really come into play. What is evil? Evil is, is fueled by the passions of the flesh. Peter would, I think, tell us that's evil. And if, you're, and if you would say, like me, well, I wasn't there on January 6th, and I probably wouldn't have been there on January 6th. I was also convicted this week as I was uh, disrupted, to put it mildly, by Chicago Public Schools and the Chicago Teachers Union. When my kids aren't in school, my kid, my one kid left in CPS, Right? And some of you are experiencing that same disruption. Where I, my temptation was to go onto Facebook and to call them clowns. Right? And I think Peter would challenge me and say, that's not what I'm talking about. Do good. What does it look like to do good? You know, in, in, in any given situation, you know, it's going to depend. It's going to differ. But how about in the situation that I just described? Am I praying for CPS and CTU? Am I, you know, considering ways in which I can, I can help care for children of parents who are in a bind because they have to go to work and now they don't have school and they don't have child care? And, you know, I mean, there, there are ways in which I can I can take my disappointment and my frustration about the brokenness of things around me and do good and to serve it rather than to resist it. Jesus was calling us to redeem that which is broken. He came in the world to redeem that which is broken. We want to subvert it. But listen, is there anything more subversive than redemption? That's how we subvert. Things need to change. Guys like Nero shouldn't be in office, right? Things need to change. So we redeem. That's subversive. We do good in society rather than resist and fight and just act out our desires of the flesh. That, that's, that's kind of the point I think he's getting at here. Now, we have to ask this question because it, it, it's a legitimate question. People are asking this question, but how do you do that if the authority is truly unjust? 
Like it's truly unjust. And I think Peter walks us right into the next line of thinking as he moves into the next institution, which is truly unjust. He talks about slavery. Look again at what he says. Oh, by the way, before I move on, I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't touch the last verse here in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Do you notice that, 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 that there is a call here to show honor to everyone? There's a ramping up in the church. We love the brotherhood, but we honor everyone. And then I love, the, I love the, the difference between God and the emperor. Honor the emperor. Why? Because you fear God. God is high. God is our king. We fear God. Not the emperor. But that fear drives us to honor the emperor. Because God has ordained him. All right. Let's get to the maybe even more challenging one. Servants. Some translations here would say slaves. And slaves would be what these servants would have been called in the first century context that Peter's writing into. Be subject. Again, the word is submit to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. This one's going to be harder for us to swallow than I think the government one even. Now, before we talk a little bit about uh, what he's saying here to slaves, we do need to recognize what slavery looked like in the first century compared to what it looked like when we think about like 19th century American slavery. <clears throat> they weren't the same, okay? So you're wondering, why doesn't he just outright condemn this? Why is he not condemning slavery here? Well, again, slavery in the first century uh, was not like the African slave trade of, in the United States and the UK where people would go, were going in, kidnapping people and enslaving them for life. All right, Slavery in the first century was something that you, you actually sort of entered into voluntarily. Uh, you could sell yourself into slavery and you would do that for a period of time. And usually you're doing that because you're, you're, you're in need of the, the, the benefit of somebody who has money or influence or power, the ability to help you sort of live life, pay bills, you know, move ahead. But there was, a, there was always the opportunity for you to then get to a point where you could get yourself out of it. You could buy yourself back or, or a certain end date would be in place. And slaves in the first century uh, spanned the gamut. You're, you're talking about doctors and lawyers as well as laborers, right? So it was, a, it was a, different, a different reality. Now, all that to say, I just want you to kind of keep in mind, like, why he's not condemning this outright is because it's, it's definitely different than what we think of when we think of slavery. This was, this was a hugely common reality for most people in the Roman, in the Roman Empire. In, in such so that we could, we could even look at it and say that it probably speaks more to like the employee-employer relationship that we know today than anything like slavery that we would think of today. Now, that said, 
He's saying here that still in that environment, when you have someone that you're in servitude to, sometimes they're good and gentle, and sometimes they're truly unjust. And I think he could say, although he doesn't, he could say that even in that context and that kind of slavery, the whole system is unjust. Because in the ideal of creation and God's design for humanity, it was never intended that people would own people, right? So the whole system is unjust. But certainly some situations are far more unjust than others. And he says to those believers in situations like that, again, be subject, not just to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows How is it gracious? Well, he says, look, if, if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure it, what credit is that to you? Like, <laughs> you know, do wrong, be treated wrong. Like, like that, that's not what I'm talking about. But he says, but when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? Because this, to this, you have been called Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. And now he's going back to what he's been instructing us all along throughout chapter one. He's saying this world is still broken. This is not our home. Uh, This is temporary. And there will be trials And there will be suffering. That's a reality still until Jesus comes back and sets things right. And in the meantime, we endure that suffering. We follow in the steps of Jesus. We identify with him in his suffering because in that suffering, we find our redemption. And so he's just pointing back to what he's been saying all along. He's saying even in in an, an unjust situation like this, I'm not calling you to resist. I'm not calling you to protest. I'm calling you to do good. I'm calling you to endure. Why? For the same reason. You in Christ are free. And this is temporary. He's coming back. He's going to make all things new. And that's your reality. But in this temporal state... Identify with him in his suffering. And he tells us what that looks like. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He, he knew my ultimate judgment is coming and it will be fully righteous because that's the judgment of God. That's, that's who I am. That's my destiny. That's my security. That's my hope. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Jesus' suffering and submission to the unjust authorities above him, he subverted it by doing good and bringing about our salvation, our redemption. By his wounds we have been healed. And now he calls us to follow in his example. He served us. His service towards us is good news. And that helps us understand then what Peter means back in in verse 13 when he says, what I'm calling you to do here, I'm calling you to do this for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Entrust yourself to his sovereignty. Entrust yourself to his position as your righteous judge. For the Lord's sake, the opportunity to suffer in persecution while serving others for the proclamation of the gospel. This points to Jesus when I endure and do good. This definitely brings up interesting application for us in 21st century America, right? I mean, we, have to, we do have to think about this contextually. We do have to kind of figure out how how does what he's saying to them apply in our unique situations. But again, don't miss the the core of what he's saying to us. Yes, there are great similarities between our society and theirs. There's also significant differences. We still do primarily enjoy more freedom than these people did. We aren't ruled by Caesar like they were. Uh, we don't work for slave masters like many of them did. And many, many of you are probably like, oh, I do. <laughs> but you don't, right? It's not the same. Um, so you might deal with some of these same kinds of pressures and persecutions and struggles. I don't think we're quite as far along as, as these people were. And we do have a greater voice in, our, in, in the institutions and the formation of the institutions around us, right? I can vote, uh, if I'm working for an unjust boss, I can quit, right? I have a voice that they don't have. So how do I apply these principles in a society like this where, where my situation's a little bit different? I think, again, we just don't lose sight of the priority. Don't lose sight of the, the first priority. We're here to be servants. We're here to be servants for the sake of the Lord. We're here to reflect the humility of Jesus, and point to the greater good of salvation. And we're not doing that when we're, when, we're, when we're screaming and yelling to subvert the order and society. We're doing it when we go into it lovingly, serving, doing good, and enduring like Jesus to reflect him in it. We're called to do this in ways that honor everyone We're called to do this in ways that silence the fools by our good works. And when we do that, yes, there are things that we're going to stand against, right? To do good in an evil world is to sometimes stand against the things that the evil world is is declaring are good, right? We will stand against certain things. But we have to be willing to stand for those things in ways that serve the greater good of society, of culture. And if we have to suffer for that, 
then so be it. The state or the culture may make me an enemy, but I should never make an enemy out of the state or the culture. They may make me one. I should never make them one. How do I take a stand for truth while remaining a servant? Just think about the the context that you're in. Think about the opportunities that God puts before you. I could could throw out some examples. Maybe I'll do that here. I'll think of a couple while I'm up here. But I don't want to necessarily steer us I want the Spirit to steer you. If, I'll give you some examples, all right, just to help you just to think. If, 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 if abortion is an injustice, I can go hold picket signs and scream and yell and try to overturn laws, right? Or I can go and meet women where they're at, in their difficulty, in their suffering, in their sorrow, in their fear, and say, how can I help you? How can I help you to, to, to see that there's hope here? How can I help you to see that there's a way forward here? How can we care for you, not just now, but going forward, so that, that you feel like there is a, a way to bring this child into the world and not feel overwhelmed by it? Right? Just an example. Think like that. How do we do good? How do we bring um, truth and, and, and correction to brokenness while also remaining a servant? If I live in such a way to point people to the example of Jesus and I serve them through my potential suffering as he did, then I remain faithful to my call to stay separate yet also go in deeply. And if I suffer unjustly, I entrust myself to a God who judges justly, right? I just entrust myself to him. And my message of hope and my message to the world is the gospel that Peter gives to us here. I'm just going to read it one more time in closing. Verse 21, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." May we point to that great reality, that greatest reality that others may see our good works and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that your word is is so, so relevant to us, Lord. The human heart not really changed. Our sinful hearts, our, our, our desires of the flesh, Lord, they, they take different uh, manifestations and avenues uh, depending on who we are and when we live and where we live. But Lord, we're, we're, we're no different than our, our forefathers and, and all these things, Lord. We, we, just, we have hearts that want to make much of ourselves. We have hearts that don't want to love. We have hearts that want to be angry and 
envious. And Lord, you, you know our hearts. You know them better than we do. So Lord, I thank you that you, you've looked upon people with ugly hearts like us and you, you came to serve us. You came to redeem us. You came to liberate us. You came to show us, Lord, that there's a better way. You revealed yourself fully to us through your son as he took on flesh. And he lived the life before us that, that shows us what humanity was meant for. And then he walked straight to a cross where he died to pay the debt that we couldn't pay for our own sin. Thank you, Lord, that his service to us saves us. He's redeemed us. You've forgiven us, Lord, and we come to you in faith. So, Lord, as redeemed and new people, I do pray that you'd help us to, to reflect Jesus. Lord, we confess that, that as the church in America, we've done a really poor job of this. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be those who do good. Lord, help us to be a people that even, even while persecuted, people would say, man, can't argue with how they love. Can't argue with the righteousness in their, in their deeds and their attitudes. Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us in that way, reflect Christ and to find joy in him, Lord. May we Glorify you, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.